Hey, friends, good afternoon. Happy Monday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. Hope you had a great weekend. Hope you're getting set for Christmas two weeks from today. we got a lot to get to uh, on the program here this afternoon. Your phone calls, your texts, of course, 403-974-8255. The COP28 Summit, this uh, global climate summit, is now wrapping up in Dubai. Canada and Alberta have had a considerable presence at this summit. Certainly, the federal government has tried to make a splash. One of the big announcements we got from the federal government last week in conjunction with the COP28 summit was this announcement that we've been waiting for for some time uh, of an emissions cap to be imposed on the oil and gas sector. Now, there's potentially a, a, another fight brewing here between Alberta and the federal government over this. There's a lot of concern as to what the actual impact is going to be. The federal government insists it's not a cap on production. Although many see otherwise, including the Alberta government uh, and many in the industry. Uh, these are going to be some steep targets for the industry to have to meet. And it is really the only industry that's being singled out for an emissions cap. Remember, I mean, the government's previous approach was carbon pricing, where emissions were priced and those emissions weren't discriminated. There was no distinction between where they came from. Uh, because, you know, a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon, regardless of what sector, what part of the country it comes from. So some uncertainty uh, this creates in the oil and gas sector and some uncertainty when it comes to investment. And, you know, this is a real interesting moment because, of course, we're now starting to see a lot more First Nations, a lot more indigenous investment involvement participation in oil and gas projects. And so what does this kind of approach do to those opportunities? Our next gets very concerned at the potential impact of this uh, referring to the emissions cap as a slap in the face to First Nations. As a great uh, op-ed piece you can read up at uh, calgaryherald.com today. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Uh, Stephen Buffalo, he is uh, president and CEO of the Indian Resource Council of Canada, senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, also a proud member of the Samson Cree Nation, and chair of the board of directors of the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation. Stephen Buffalo, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me today. I know we've been waiting the details on this uh, emissions cap. Uh, you know, maybe it wasn't quite as as severe as we thought it was going to be. But what was your reaction, first of all, last week? Well, of course, you know, it's always hard to read about it when you weren't consulted. And, and again, you know, as, as Indigenous people now wanting to take their, their forward step in economic development, uh, uh, obviously natural resources abundance in, in, in Alberta. And that our, our, our nations have been really consulted about this. And, and uh, of course, we've invested heavily into this sector just to get a piece of the pie. Uh, you know, I don't have time to tell you about the Indian Act and how that federal funding works. But when we yeah. generate our own revenue, it's very important to us, you know, because we can address other needs, you know, that our communities need. So uh, this this emissions cap, it, it's slowly whittling away at, at some of the rights I think we've had and proven in the Supreme Court. And of course, when you're starting to uh, attack our economic development opportunities, it, it's 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 somewhat concerning. Well, it is surprising that there hasn't been that consultation, as you say, because this is something that the, the government talks a lot about, the importance uh, of meaningful consultation, and yet it, it hasn't happened on this. So what, what are we to make of that? Well, you know, uh, it, like the consultation piece has been kind of set in stone at, at the Supreme Court level. And, and uh, unfortunately, with, with the way this uh, government is working with Indigenous people, they seem to just go along with the uh, nations that might just agree with them. And, and uh, you know, maybe some other advocacy organizations so they can tick that box. 
that we've consulted with First Nations. But in actuality, you know, through the Indian Resource Council and our membership, and our membership really includes the oil and gas producing nations that have been affected by uh, the industry, uh, also uh, through pipelines and what have you. They, they, I don't think they've uh, been reached out to by this this government and the Ministry of uh, Environment. You know, they might set, set a broad net, but ultimately uh, not having a strong voice at the table, I think, was, was what's lacking here. And, uh, of course, we, we're we concerned about the environment just like everyone else. Yeah. But in the same sense, you know, our, our nations are, are poverty, and, and uh, this industry is so important to us. Well, it is. And, and, you know, we've been talking about trying to get to this point for so many years, right, to to create those partnerships, those opportunities. Now that we're finally getting to that point and we're starting to see that, it's it's almost like we're going to take a step backward now. Absolutely. You know, like even outside of you know, this emissions cap and, and really what Alberta, our, our province, Western Canada, that's for, for Eastern Canada in regards to federal transfers and what have you, you know, the I, I couldn't sleep for three days when former Minister of um, Energy here in Alberta had told me Alberta was transferring $22 billion to Ottawa and Quebec was getting $13 billion of that money. I could not sleep for three days because how does that happen? You know, the, how important is this industry to the prosperity of Canada? Mm-hmm. And now we're trying to put an emissions cap. You know, and, and that's the hard part. In this. I'm not seeing or hearing that, you know, the government is working with our industry. You know, industry industry is turning to starting to be a really strong partner for First Nations. We're getting not only jobs but investment opportunity, ownership opportunities, and and that's important to us. Like I said, I don't have time to share how the Indian Act works, but it's difficult. You know, I call it soft communism for our First Nations. Our chiefs have to manage poverty. You know, and it, it, it's difficult. So this has to really. Uh, be be taken to the grassroots level and, and to be talked about until we can find a solution. Yeah, you point out in your piece, you know, just the progress we've made in recent years, more than 100 First Nations are substantially invested in oil and gas production as employees, employers, partners, equity participants, dozens more have approved pipeline construction on their traditional lands. Many more have solid investments in oil and gas development and infrastructure. So there seems to be a lot of momentum happening here. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, I work with this group called the Canadian Energy Executive Association, a.k.a. the Oilmen, and they really opened my eyes, to, you know, to, to what they want to see done. You know, they've, they've opened uh, the doors for partnerships, meaningful relationships, and also, you know, they, they wanted to bridge that gap, relationship building, you know, and then the fact that, you know, we're all here together. And, and they've figured out that the one constant in this formula to, to being a successful country is that First Nations are a constant. We're not going anywhere. So, you know, having to work together is very important. But we also have to keep in mind that we still want to protect Mother Earth. We want to protect the environment. And in innovation and technology advancements, I think, are the way to go here. Uh, and and uh, we're seeing it with this carbon tax that, uh, you know, we're, we're being uh, kind of plagued by that, too. You know, we're feeling the inflation. So, you know, some, some of the initiatives by the federal government is this kind of going against, you know, what we have to deal with. And, and at the end of the day, you know, our nation seemed to be stuck kind of in a certain area of class of people, call it poverty. And we we're just trying to find a way to get out of it. And right now, industry is doing their best to make sure that we're partners and we're prospering together. So what's your concern about the potential impacts of the emissions cap, that, that it might put a chill on some of these projects or a chill on some of this investment? 
Absolutely, especially our First Nations that are invested in certain projects already that are, uh, you know, the, the the tank farm up in Fort Murray, you know, the, the yeah. deal that was done with 28 First Nations and making settlements in Alberta with Enbridge. You know, uh, these things might really hamper those uh, those returns as being an investment owner. And again, you know, now that's a kind of an attack on our economic development and the creation of wealth that some of these nations might have. And uh, when you're not talking to the people, that's that's just that's somewhat concerning and uh it, it just really has to change you know uh I'm, I'm just really disappointed that the federal government is moving this way and being so aggressive about it mm-hmm. you know uh, it's just got to be uh it, it's got to stop in some sense and and really uh let's sit down at the table but uh who knows what will happen next year? Yeah. What would be a better approach, do you think? If if government was interested in trying to further these opportunities and these partnerships, I know there's been a lot of talk, you know, potentially about a national indigenous loan guarantee program, and that could help, you know, stimulate more of this investment. Is is that more what we need? Well, it depends, you know, where, where you're sitting at. And on all honesty, I, I, I agree there should be a carbon tax, but it shouldn't be coming to the everyday Joe Canada and, and – uh, you know, I, I think industry has a responsibility there, but they need that takeaway capacity. You know, there's world markets that we haven't uh, haven't got access cut off. You know, uh, mm-hmm. EMX ain't quite done. We we canceled Northern Gateway. Uh, we're still importing uh, foreign oil in the Eastern Seaboard. Uh, we we lost Energy East. So you know, carbon taxes warranted when those projects were if ever were completed, and now everyone's paying for it. Even the non even the indigenous people. You know, Section uh, 87 under the Indian Act, which is in the Constitution, states that, you know, First Nations shouldn't be paying uh, carbon tax. But uh, we're we're at this place now where inflation, it's embedded in everything. The fuel we purchase, it's embedded in our heating, uh, home heating. It's uh, the inflation when we buy food and groceries. It's it's, it's all over the place. And, and uh, I... Again, we, we we care about the environment. We, we we think that there should be something there, but in the same sense, it, it's really hard to support when you when we weren't at the discussions about it, right? And it's I don't know, but we're at that point where it's it, we support. Maybe we should act it and then come together and find a way to work together on it. We'll see where it all goes from here. Uh, as mentioned, uh, your op-ed it's up at uh, CalgaryHerald.com. Uh, Stephen Buffalo, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Appreciate for having me. Thank you. All the best, sir. Take care. Uh, that is Stephen Buffalo, member of the uh, Samson Cree Nation, president and CEO of the Indian Resources Council of Canada, also board chair of the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, as a senior fellow of the McDonald Laurier Institute. So real frustration here that uh, the concern that this policy and, and maybe even other federal policies, too, uh, could be an obstacle. So what he sees as real opportunities and partnerships being built between First Nations and uh, the oil and gas sector. And that if there's something that the federal government is bringing in that could affect First Nations in that way and not consult with them beforehand is just another slap in the face on top of that. Welcome back. Afternoon song QR Calgary. Rob Breckenridge with you. Uh, we'll get back to more of your phone calls here this afternoon, uh, 974-TALK, and a few other things to get to. Uh, last week, uh, on December 7th, which was uh, two months after the Hamas attack on Israel of October 7th, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie uh, took to social media to, to acknowledge one ugly aspect uh, of that attack, the use of rape, the use of sexual violence. 
So the minister wrote, quote, using sexual violence as a tactic, as a tactic of war is a crime. We strongly condemn sexual and gender-based violence, including rape perpetrated by Hamas against women in Israel on October 7th. We believe Israeli women. Canada will always stand against sexual and gender-based violence and advocate for justice for all victims. Uh, again, this was one horrific aspect of that attack on October 7th, but it's been a, a source of some controversy, sadly. Uh, those who have denied or downplayed this aspect of the events of October 7th and even some disappointment that it took the foreign affairs minister two months to, to very publicly acknowledge that. Uh, this is one area where maybe Canada can play a leadership role, both in, in supporting the survivors uh, of what happened that day and uh, the investigation, the further investigation of the extent to which rape and sexual violence was used as an act of war by Hamas on October 7th. There was a news conference uh, this afternoon in Toronto, uh, and it was really interesting to see the cross-party support for this. Uh, Kathleen Wynne, former Liberal Premier of Ontario, uh, Sherry DiNovo, uh, former uh, New Democrats politician from Ontario, and Lisa Wright, former Conservative interim leader, member of parliament, and cabinet minister calling on Canada to, to play a leading role here. Joining us uh, for more is the, the aforementioned uh, Lisa Wright, former member of parliament, uh, former cabinet minister, former interim leader of the Conservative Party. Ms. Wright, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. So tell us a bit more then about how this came together, this this partnership and, and the message you were, you were sending today. So um, thank you for pointing out the, the atrocities and, and how uh, you've given a really good summation of what's happened since October 7. Um, I was approached uh, last week and asked whether or not I would be interested in coming to an event with Kathleen Wynne and Sherry DeNovo, talking about the importance of shedding light on what happened on October 7 vis-a-vis the sexual violence and the use of rape as a weapon of war. And... Um, from that, there was also uh, a policy proposal put to the government of Canada saying, you know, let's recognize it, let's lead, and let's do exactly what we did with respect to Ukraine when it happened. And that's put our CMP officers there to investigate and to provide a very, very small amount of money, $1 million, to help victims. And it's, it's twofold. One, actually to do something with respect to this matter. But secondly, to show the families of those who are still um, being held captive and the families of the victims that Canada takes the matter very seriously and that they are going to be treated in a, in a very serious matter just to make sure that, you know, the message isn't lost because it seems to have become lost. How did it get that way, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's the conversation that Kathleen Cherry and I had before we did the press conference was, how did we get to this place where there is actual disbelief of what happened in Israel to the women at the music festival or to the women at the kibbutzes when there is video evidence and medical examiners and first responders and testimony of those who survived. I mean, it's unfathomable to me that there is this, um, a, a yes, it may have happened, but, or equally, that there's just a complete denial that it happened. And, and people saying that out loud with such strength and such conviction when we know that not to be true so very important to have that cross-party support to indicate uh, that's not how we're thinking and we believe that the, the government of Canada should lead because that's where we think the Canadian population is.
Yeah, and I'm sure you're aware. I mean, there's a controversy uh, here in Alberta a few weeks ago made, you know, got certainly national attention where there were a number of signatories to a letter calling for a ceasefire. But one aspect of the letter was was pretty overt in, in denying these these, um, you know, these allegations and the evidence of rape and sexual assault. One of the signatories to that was the sexual assault center at the University of Alberta. And their director was was uh, removed from that position. But just how shocking it was to see a sexual assault center whose entire message is about believing and supporting women, suggesting that, you know, these allegations were, were lies. I think it's kind of an extreme example, though, but what you were talking about. It, it's jaw-dropping, but those are the things that kind of get your attention. And you do see, you do see um, you know, women expressing themselves on social media, saying exactly the same thing, that this didn't happen or it's okay that it happened. And, you know... Cherry and Kathleen uh, and I are longtime feminists from very different parts of the political spectrum. But on this, we come together and we are very, very clear that this cannot happen again. If you normalize this now and explain it away by saying whatever it is that you need to say in order to try to condone what happened, that's that's going to that's not going to be helpful for anyone going into the future. So I think it's incredibly important that the brutality. The other part of it, too, Rob, is, I mean, here we are in the situation where Israeli women have to show proof that it happened. Like the, right. the concept of the woman is believed is out the window. And, and when they do give the proof and they do give the testimony, it is just so graphically, um, it's so graphic and, and so incredibly unbelievable that people then say, oh, don't, no, don't tell us about it because we don't want to hear about it. Um, but the reality is, is that, and I've said this a couple of times today, but I swear, if somebody wrote this in a movie script, what happened, the description of what happened to these women, the movie would never be made because the level of gratuitous violence is such that no one would touch it and it would never be made. And, and I think, you know, we can't close our eyes. We can't hold our hands over our eyes to this one because it actually happened. Now, and again, I know today, you know, this event was about this being nonpartisan. It should be nonpartisan. But I mean, I did want to ask you about the minister's statement last week, a necessary statement, but maybe it could have been made much sooner. Your, your thoughts on the, the foreign affairs minister and what she said about this last week? What matters to me is what Melanie Jolie does now going forward. And I want to see Canada take a leading role. Um, and I want to see more women's voices join together talking about how and the rape and the mutilation and the attack on women as a means of war is unacceptable and has to be treated as such and, and has to be re- being brought to a, a different level of, of scrutiny because you cannot just say it's a tool of war and and uh, explain it away. And, and what I want to see is Canada taking a very strong, concerted, and, and to be, I will, I will for one moment be partisan and say, if this is a truly feminist government, then that's exactly what they'll do. Mm-hmm. And as you say, we, we've got some expertise. We've got some experience in this area, right? So we can we can contribute something here. We certainly can. I mean, and and quite frankly, what what else can we contribute? It's very difficult right now for the for the Canadian forces. This this is a this is a conflict that is that is ongoing and and will continue for a while. And there's still hostages in the tunnels of Gaza. Um, but what we can do is we can help victims, we can help victims' families, and we can help provide the expertise in investigating these kinds of of, uh, of actions. And compiling the evidence and making it ready for the International Court of Justice, where this should end up as a crime against humanity. 
Some of this, I wonder to what extent, though, it, is it a byproduct of some of the, you know, the manifestations of anti-Semitism we've been seeing, some pretty awful uh, hate crimes we've seen uh, occur across the country? I, I saw the news the other day, Erwin Kotler, and I mean, you served on, on the other side of the benches from, from Mr. Kotler, but, you know, he's under police protection, round-the-clock police protection because of threats on his life. Like, we're seeing something really awful unfolding here. We are witnessing something incredibly unbelievable to those of us who who don't curry in anti-Semitism, quite frankly. Um, uh, it's it's the unfathomable side of it that there would have there would be this this kind of um, acceptance that it's okay to single out one group of Canadians for this kind of violence and for this kind of hate. And I'm sure, and I I I can't speak for the Jewish community, but I am sure that they're looking at each other and saying, well, how did this happen? Like, yeah. what have, what has happened here? And they haven't done anything to deserve this. Like, what is going on? And I think it's important for allies outside of the community to, to speak up. And, and if you're not speaking up, then you should. And if you haven't read the testimony of the victims and the witnesses, then you should, because then you can't ignore what happened. And, and you should. You should. Absolutely. Well said. We'll leave it there. Uh, Lisa Ray, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. It was a great pleasure. Thanks, Rob. All the best. Uh, Lisa Ray, uh, former conservative member of parliament, so was interim leader of the party for a time and uh, did serve in cabinet as well. So three women uh, from the conservatives, the liberals, the new Democrats coming together uh, to say, look, Canada can play a leadership role here in helping to investigate these atrocities, these acts of rape and sexual violence as tools of war by Hamas. And, and to, to be there for those who, who suffer and survive this. So to see the denial of that and the downplaying of that uh, here at home, especially, you know, that whole ugly episode with the University of Alberta Sexual Assault Center is really discouraging. So it seems as though pressure is really ramping up in Alberta's health care system, particularly right now with uh, urgent care, emergency care, acute care. And Albertans are certainly noticing there's some tough questions uh, for the premier over the weekend uh, on your province, your premier right here on QR Calgary. What are you guys going to do to fix the 10 to 12 hour waiting times in emergency rooms in Alberta? It's been going on for decades now and it, it's out of control. We're not cattle here. Oh, you're so right. And I, I I put that as a priority when I first got elected a year ago. We had we had put in an official administrator and we're making some progress. But I, I must tell you, I was a bit disappointed that we saw some regression over the course of the election and we had to make a, a more significant change. So there have been several members of the senior executive team that have been uh, let go. And we've hired a, a new head of our Alberta Health Services who's been there, who was there for about nine months before she left and went to join the Alberta Medical Association. We, we managed to convince her to come back, but I can tell you Athena Methanopoulos was the, the person who was the architect of the major improvements that we were making in, in uh, EMS services to make sure that we got rid of the red alerts. And I have a lot of confidence that she's going to be able to address this issue. We've given AHS a sole mandate they have to improve the acute care services they provide in all of our hospitals. That means that we do not want to see closures of our uh, EMS or closures of our emergency um, operate our emergency rooms that we've been seeing, unfortunately, in rural Alberta. We want to make sure that the patient flow 
through the emergency rooms is optimized. We want to make sure there's there, that ambulances are not waiting for hours and hours dropping off patients, and we need to make sure that we're that we're increasing the amount of surgeries. So, so that's what AHS is going to be focused on under its new leadership. And I would just ask for you to to give us a, a little bit of time, and uh, and I hope that we will be able to report back to you within six months or, or shorter that we're making major progress. But I, I agree that, that what we've had right now is, is unacceptable and we've got to improve it. Okay, so there you go. That was what the Premier had to say, agreeing that it's unacceptable and suggesting that uh, there's no quick fix here. Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts uh, on the state of acute care in Alberta, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Paul Parks, president of the Alberta Medical Association. Dr. Parks, good afternoon. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, what, what are you hearing uh, from your members? What's your assessment of the situation right now? Well, in the last week or two, I've had a bunch of my colleagues reach out to me and, and, and you know, sad to report, but I they've been, some of them have been working for more than 30 years and I've never seen it as bad in terms of access block and overcrowding in our emergency departments. And it's just gotten to a critical, a critical point. Like even today now, I my colleagues tell me, like, you know, it's not just Edmonton and Calgary too. Like Red Deer, they, they our emergency department has 36 emerged beds, and 35 of them have admitted patients that can't go up into the hospital because there's no space. At the U of A right now, there's over 55 of the 60 beds are admitted patients that can't go into the hospital. It, it's it's truly beyond critical across the province right now. Right. I mean, is is it worse in certain spots? I mean, we're hearing that, that Edmonton's been under, you know, especially under pressure, but it, does it seem to be everywhere? It's definitely across the major regional centers across the province. That's, you know, one of the solutions we can often do is if Edmonton zone's really bad, try to load level and, and have some of the sick patients transferred down to Calgary. But of course, right now we're seeing it, it it's impacting across the province in all the big big centers and so and and out to the regional centers and and i you know it's not the emergency departments are just the symptom right it, the fact that we have you know so many sick patients that are stuck in our emergency department that need to be up admitted up in the hospitals because on the floors up there they're at 150 percent capacity they are truly overflowing uh, and and it's just now adding on top of it really sick patients and a lot of influenza patients and a lot of respiratory illness it's gotten to the point where our weights have become inordinate and it's hard to get safe and timely care. Yeah, so there's a lot more demand on the system, but uh, are, are there the professionals able there to handle it? So when we talk about capacity, that's not, not just beds, obviously. You need the workforce. Are we seeing a depleted workforce at the moment? Absolutely depleted. And and that's that's a critical point you make. You know, even now when we're talking about the IC, ICU capacity across the province, for example, we, we know that a lot of the zones are in surge already, meaning that they're above their regular capacity and are taking on extra patients. And there, there are a handful of beds uh, on, the, on the map that say that they're available. But what we're actually finding, too, is that if we don't have the staff, if you don't have the human beings that are skilled and trained to care for the patients in those beds, then they're just beds. So across the, the ICU is just an example, but on our on our wards and, not, and throughout our hospital and throughout our whole system, the, the workforce is severely depleted. And, and so everybody that we have less people caring for a lot more people and a lot sicker people, uh, it's, just, it's just burning them out and, and it's just causing a vicious cycle where we're losing more and more staff as it carries on. Now, I understand you've had some conversation with Alberta's Minister of Health. What, what can you tell us about those conversations? I, I think that the minister truly understands how critical things have gotten 
I think to be fair to this government and the minister, they're inheriting more than 10 years of, of either stagnation or neglect on investing on the capacity side and on our workforce side. And so we've, we've met with, the, we put in front of the minister a hospital stabilization plan, for example, that will take some, you know, significant investment right now up front so that we can incent having physicians work at the after hours in the, uh, actual um hospital at two in the morning we we need we need to have physicians and staff in the hospital working 24 7 so that we can care for these sick patients we we need to change the funding models just as one simple example for your learners and listener story is that we actually have uh some of our funding plans have been in front of government for more than 15 years that haven't been updated and have stalled and and those are those are funding plans for our hospitalists or the people that are actually in uh doing the the hard work after hours and it's been stalled so we really just we need immediate action we need to invest in to update these things and and we need to stabilize the acute care system well i mean to that end then are are there steps that could be taken that they could have an immediate impact yeah, I think I think a couple of the big things are immediate looking. How do we do all hands on deck? How do we get shift our workforce around and incent them to do the really difficult work right now in hospitals where people are really overflowing and struggling? And and then and then ultimately we can plan the more medium and long term around how do we recruit more? How do we actually uh, increase our universities and our training and and all those pieces that will take more time? But right now workforce analysis and and reload kind of leveling where they are that's one thing our our volume leveling too of of sick patients i know ahs is starting to implement some of these things but uh it's just be doing this in a really concerted manner and and the first step is being transparent and declaring listen it's the state of the 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 measures we're implementing right now internally in our ahs big hospitals are our disaster plan measures we are implementing things that we do when when we face an internal disaster as an example and 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 so we just need support to be able to do this in a big concerted way across the province and we need some real investment up front right now so we can stabilize the system and we don't lose more of our workers more of our nurses healthcare workers and physicians right and in terms of albertans being aware of all of this i mean unless people have had to go to to an er or an urgent care center maybe they're not aware of just how bad things are right now and the health minister doesn't exactly seem to be front and center and the chief medical officer of health seems you know nowhere to be seen where's the communication on all of this oh some of that is broken to be blunt like we we have the worst influenza numbers i think that we've had in years but to be really fair to you i i can't tell you or confirm that because I don't know what our chief medical officer is saying around the really sick influenza numbers uh, that we're dealing with right now. And, and that's just not normal. Like we should really be having leadership now that are talking about what are some of the pressures, what can we do to mitigate it in terms of, you know, not going out when you're sick, but getting vaccinated. A lot of those things we've always been talking about, yeah. it would really help. But But I'll tell you, yeah, I mean, we see it every day now. One of the reasons I'm talking about it a lot now is, until Albertans walk into our emerge departments and are seeking care for themselves or a loved one, they, I don't think they truly know what they're going to be in for when, you know, those average hours, the, the weights that you, you talk about around 10 hours, those are average. Like some of our people that are showing up are waiting 18, 19, 20 hours. And that's just to get care. That's, that's literally to get, you know, the first touch point to get some pain meds or some treatment. So it's, it's really... I don't think Albertans know how, how, how kind of log-jammed and critical things are right now. We'll leave it there. Dr. Parks, appreciate your time here this afternoon. Thanks so much for the update. 
Yeah, thanks. Uh, happy to chat because I think we, we need to discuss this more and get some solutions out there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All the best. Uh, Dr. Paul Parks, president of the Alberta Medical Association. Uh, so trying to call attention to the problem. And, and saying, look, I mean, it's one thing for the premier to talk about, you know, give us six months and hopefully, we'll, you know, things will look better. I mean, sure, once winter's over, I'm sure things will look better, regardless of what the government does or doesn't do. And, yeah, you know, they're, they're doing a lot in terms of an overhaul of Alberta Health Services, but is that necessarily going to address any of this? You know, and, and certainly, look, I mean, you know, the criticism of... You know, the government response or AHS response in uh, the beginning of the pandemic is, well, why don't you just increase the capacity of the, the healthcare system? Uh, you know, as we're seeing, that's, that's easier said than done. So that, that remains an issue. So how do we address this? More space, more beds, more surge capacity? Sure, okay. Uh, but what about the staff then? A, a bed's kind of useless if you don't have the doctors and the nurses or, or the staff to, to uh, handle that. So that's part of the concern here is, uh, you know, more demand on the system and a depleted workforce. Uh, so the AMA wants to see some steps taken to address both sides of that. And, you know, to have some leadership here from the Minister of Health and uh, the Chief Medical Officer of Health. And it's pretty rare, unfortunately, that we ever hear from the Chief Medical Officer of Health. But I think Albertans deserve to know how bad are things? Why are they this bad? What do we need to know then? When it comes to decisions we make about how to access the healthcare system, do we need to be uh, going out of a way to discourage Albertans from going to an emergency room if they really don't have to? You know, even that kind of communication would be important, even preventative steps. You know, that could go a long way right now, too. Welcome back. Afternoons on QR Calgary. Rob Breckenridge with you. We'll get back to more of your phone calls uh, coming up here, 403-974-8255. We can certainly talk more about Alberta's health care system, the pressure on emergency rooms at the moment. We'll get to some of those issues. A couple of things I want to get to as well here. Some new research regarding the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and how well Canadians understand that document. Of course, last year, the Charter marked its 40th anniversary. And look, we've seen some pretty important, uh, dare we say, landmark rulings from the Supreme Court of Canada in recent years uh, that, of course, uh, flow from the Charter. Uh, some new research, though, shows Canadians uh, are often abused about certain aspects of the Charter. Uh, you know, given how close we are to the U.S., um, there's a lot of overlap in what we hear about the uh, U.S. Declaration of Independence and uh, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, some of these challenges, why it all matters, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Jack Jedwab, who's president of the Association for Canadian Studies, and they commissioned this survey along with the Metropolis Institute. Uh, Jack, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you very much, Rob. So what were you seeking to, to learn through this uh, survey, first of all? Well, we wanted to get a better handle on what the familiarity of the Canadian population was with respect to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The reason that we commissioned the survey was that uh, today, uh, rather yesterday, is the uh, yesterday is the was the anniversary of the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of uh, of uh, Human Rights, uh, and uh, the co-author of that declaration, John Humphreys, was a Canadian. So we thought it would be appropriate to. Uh, to do a survey looking at uh, Canadian perceptions of our own rights and freedoms. And what we encountered was was uh, a bit surprising in that, you know, even though a significant proportion of Canadians purport to have read the Charter, uh, they, they're, those very same people aren't familiar with some of the key provisions. 
Right. And so, you know, I mean, that, that, that is surprising. So let's go through this. So where, where, where do we see that unfamiliarity? Well, in one of the first things that struck me in the provision, which is the opening line of the charter about the supremacy of God and the rule of law, uh, Canadians, independent of those who purport to have read the charter, they were split on whether they agreed or disagreed about uh, the supremacy of God and the rule of law uh, being something that was part of the charter. But even those people who said they've read the charter, a third of them uh, said that that wasn't in the Charter of Rights, even though it's the opening line of the charter. And another one in five said they didn't know amongst those people who said, when I asked, did you read the charter? And, and they indicated in the affirmative on that. Right. So what does that tell you then? It tells us that uh, that those Canadians who said, in my view, anyways, that they've read the Charter of Rights actually probably think of reading it in very broad terms. They've, I think they mean they've seen it as opposed to having read through it. And so they're making their judgments about aspects of the Charter more in line with their own personal opinions of what they think uh, is uh, properly aligned with the Charter, right, rather than having a, uh, taken a really good reading of it. So I think the reading in this case is more reading as interpretation of things rather than actually having read it article by article. And again, I, I think, as, as I alluded to, I mean, there seems to be some confusion or overlap between the Charter and the U.S. Declaration of Independence and uh, the rights that Americans have. So, for example, there's a question about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is not something in the Charter. It's similar in some ways to, to Section 7 of the Charter, but uh, are people conflating the two? Yeah, I think people are conflating the two. And, you know, again, I think that the uh, American cultural influences, mm -hmm. you know, we hear a lot about uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so uh, there seem to be uh, too many people, 88%, that made that connection, thinking by virtue of hearing that phrase, yes, uh, there's something Canadian about that phrase, uh, uh, not realizing that that's what's in the American Constitution. I actually... I actually felt good when I formulated that question. I was like, you know, uh, at least I'm not part of the 88% that, you know, uh, realizes that, that, that thinks that that's part of our Constitution. But it's, it's, it's still, it, it, it's, it is an area of concern uh, that what we sort of, when we sort of think about our own identity as Canadians, that we, you know, uh, embrace the idea of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. It's a very nice idea, but it's not part of our constitutional charter. It's interesting, too, because, you know, we've got, well, Section 1 of the Charter talks about reasonable limits to all of these rights. And then, of course, we have the notwithstanding clause, and there's been a lot more focus on that recently. So these are areas where, you know, governments can impose some, some limits or some restrictions on these rights. What is the level of understanding around that? Yeah, also an area where a, a significant minority of Canadians uh, were unaware that the government can impose those limits. Um, Again, there's an issue of not only education with the Charter, but political literacy, because uh, we've seen a lot of talk across the country about the use of notwithstanding clause more recently. Uh, in Quebec, you'd think that uh, it'd be extremely well known because it's been invoked on a number of occasions in, in the province of Quebec, and yet a significant minority of people are not of the view that governments can limit rights and freedoms. I think these people, again, are speaking more to their own opinion uh, about whether rights and freedoms should or should not be limited, right. rather than speaking to a good analysis of what's in the Charter. And so, really, this whole poll uh, contributes to uh, the need for more education or better knowledge 
uh, about the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and more literacy uh, in that regard, because it's important for Canadians to know not only uh, about rights and freedoms in general, but also about their own personal rights and freedoms that are sort of enshrined and enumerated in the Charter. There's some questions in this, too, about, you know, the kinds of rights Canadians think should be prioritized. Uh, there may be a preference for individual rights over over group rights. Correct. That was the reading I had of it, because it was things like freedom of expression and the right to privacy, that when Canadians were presented with a list uh, in terms of what rights they thought were uh, most at risk or most threatened. Those were the things they uh, identified principally, less so things that involved groups in Canada. So language rights didn't fare particularly, minority language rights didn't particularly fare particularly well. Minority religious groups in terms of their rights didn't fare particularly well in terms of what was considered a priority. So I don't think the poll is saying explicitly that people are saying these rights aren't important. They're just not the ones that people felt at this particular time in their history uh, were most at risk because uh, my sense was that most Canadians didn't feel they were affected personally by those things. So to the extent they weren't part of a minority language group or minority religious group, since they didn't feel personally affected by it, they didn't feel it was most at risk. They thought that that, that what was most at risk were the things that affected them individually, which was privacy and, and freedom of expression. But even then, I mean, some of this may seem abstract to, to some extent, or maybe we take these things for granted, right? So you talk about gaps in knowledge, the need for education, but you know, what's the message for Canadians about why this matters? Uh, because in order to be an engaged citizen in this country and be in sort of fully participatory in our democracy and feel as though our democracy uh, is able to represent you, you need to know what rights uh, uh, you can make recourse to when you feel that you've been aggrieved, right? So, which which is important, in, again, in order to feel as though you're an engaged citizen in this country. That knowledge is important. Uh, it's important to be able to share that knowledge. It's important to be able to uh, help other Canadians who feel that their rights may be at risk uh, to be able to act on situations where they need assistance or support that that flows from that charter mm-hmm. so those things are very important and you know i think the charter is a uh, an important defining element of who we are as canadians in its own inception it it, it, it attempted to uh, define uh the priorities of canadians in terms of who we are as a country as we sort of evolved uh from where we were historically when you know, back in the day, uh, we were part of the British Commonwealth and so forth before we introduced our, our, our constitution and, and the accompanying charter, which described uh, a lot of the rights that we thought were priorities and have shaped a lot of our debates going forward, at least since the 1980s. Uh, much more on all of this. It's acs-metropolis.ca. Uh, Jack, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.